people with a mental illness are 16 times more likely to be shot and killed by a police officer than the average population. So um, there are a lot of, uh, what else? People with uh, mental illness um, that goes untreated often live 20 to 30 years below the average life expectancy. So there are a lot of determinants that mental illness is the origin of. It's not a byproduct. It's not a personal weakness. It's nothing like that. It develops and then these negative determinants tend to come. Hi, Changemaker. My name is Jesse Coleman and you're listening to Miking Change, a podcast that puts a microphone to the stories that matter. Today, I'm joined by Jeremiah Bainbridge, the Development Manager for National Alliance on Mental Illness Seattle. NAMI Seattle's mission is to address the unmet mental health needs within the Seattle community through support, referral, education, and outreach. NAMI envisions a world where all those impacted by mental illness know they are not alone and are empowered to live a fulfilling life. Jeremiah is a fundraiser and a mental health activist who first joined NAMI Seattle as a board member, serving on their philanthropy and policy committee. Before joining NAMI, he was a volunteer grant writer for Life Designs and a networking assistance for New Leaf, New Life, an anti-recidivism organization supporting formerly incarcerated persons. Hi, Jeremiah. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, you mentioned in, in your email that, that you've had some of your own personal experiences with mental illness. Would you mind uh, talking about that? Sure. Um, shortly after I was 18, I had a diagnosis of what at the time was major depressive disorder. Um, and then later re-diagnosed as having type 2 bipolar disorder, which is uh, usually long stretches of depression and intermittent uh, episodes of what's called hypomania, where you're not um, completely unaware of your surroundings, um, but inhibitions really dropped. Um, I tend to get agitated, uh, things like that. It's led to some pretty serious consequences for me, both with the legal system and with an involuntary hospitalization. So it's really, I've been very lucky that I haven't been caught in either the medical or justice system and couldn't seem to get out. Um, but it's given me a lot of insight into exactly um, kind of how people with mental illness are treated by our institutions. And so that's kind of fueled my desire to be a mental health advocate was my own personal experience through uh, those sorts of uh, predicaments. Yeah. And how, how are people with mental illness treated in those um, systems? I can tell you that in jail, um, it is not well. Um, I actually had the guards who were uh, supposed to be watching me for suicide watch tell me to kill myself. So uh, oh, wow. the jail environment is terrible for people with mental health conditions. Um, they tend to be warehoused together. Um, and, uh, it's just not, it's not a very good environment for anyone, let alone someone who's experiencing a mental health crisis. And the hospital that I visited, that institution largely suffered from a lack of compassion, which I think was brought about by a lack of staff. Um, the psychiatrist only came one day a week, um, Social workers were also there, I think, one day a week, and the other times um, there were a lot of restraints used, um, a lot of threats of restraint. So um, our mental health institutions, as I've experienced them, have been very, very atrocious towards people who have a mental health condition. Yeah. Wow. What What is that experience, those experiences, like... I mean, I, I, I'm just having, it, it blows my mind, I, having not never gone through something like that. And I myself have have uh, major depressive disorder and, um, and manage my anxiety. And, um, and I know how much it's impacted uh, the people I love. And, um, and I'm just wondering uh, how, how you manage that, um, and, and what you, you've gone through 
with that if you're if you're willing to share yeah it's um it was a very difficult thing to manage for some time there was a lot of anger um a lot of resentment um especially towards the institutions i'd been through but i was very fortunate in that i have very loving supportive family and very loving supportive friends and they really helped me to kind of validate my feelings without engaging in any destructive behavior. Um, you know, I had psychiatrists telling me I deserve to be in jail and things like that. So for a little while, the professional world wasn't really my friend. And so it was really my peer group that kind of helped me get along and um, decide to keep going with life, even though things seemed uh, seemed really dark for a while. Yeah, right. And and so then you you got involved with um, Namie Seattle. Tell, what's Namie Seattle? I did. So I started working with Namie Seattle, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and we're the local chapter here in the Seattle area in the Ballard neighborhood. And um, a lot of what we do is to fight stigma of mental illness. And that was very important to me because I felt like when I was growing up, I didn't get a lot of recognition or was kind of had my symptoms and my illness kind of dismissed, even by close friends and um, others that I knew. So um, I knew I kind of wanted to get involved in an advocacy group that would stand up for people who had mental health conditions. Um, and so I first started working with them on an open public policy committee, um, kind of discussing uh, mental health care law. Um, we largely discussed kind of the nature of uh, involuntary commitment, which is a really complex issue. And um, later on in 2018, I joined their board of directors. Um, we uh, heavily recruit people who have experience with mental illness, either through a loved one or through themselves. Um, and so I did that work. And then in 2019, the organization needed a development manager, and I'd been looking to make a career change. And um, so then I moved from the board to a full-time employee. And uh, I have been working as the development manager since 2019 in February. Right on. What a time to start, <laughs> um, <laughs> especially when we're talking about mental illness, you know, like it's, I'm, I've heard people describe this past year and a half as there are really three pandemics going on, one being COVID-19, one being um, a racial reckoning that has been long overdue. And, and the other being mental illness and how it's just exasperated mental health um, and put pressure on it. Um, so, I mean, how, how is, uh, what are some of the unmet mental health needs within um, our community here in Seattle? So there are quite a few. Uh, one complaint that you'll hear from parents and uh, peers, which is another word we use for people with lived experience, um, is that when getting out of a hospital after a hospitalization for a mental health crisis, there are no services available or or the, um, the services might take six weeks before they are available or sometimes even longer. Um, this usually means that someone relapses and winds up right back in the hospital. Um, so this is a huge gap. Uh, one of the things we try to do is connect people with um, like Medicare specific uh, mental health clinics or um, try to get them connected to the housing and essential needs program or what limited permanent supportive housing we do have in Seattle. Um, anything we can really do to try to um, get people services quickly in a continuum. And that's a big thing that we do with our resource line is we try to make sure that people have the services they need when they need them. It's very difficult because we are underserved, um, but uh, we do our best to be able to do that. Um, another major need, you you mentioned uh, 
two other things, and they're both really connected to mental health. Um, one with the racial reckoning, um, something that's become very clear is that mental health conversations are different in different cultures. And also there is a real lack of cultural competence in our medical systems. We've seen that there's still aspects of white supremacy built into our medical system or white privilege or other aspects like that. And so, um, you know, when we really look at where mental health support is for this revisiting of trauma that keeps happening, um, especially in the African-American community, we just um, we don't have the mental health services that are trustworthy to them because of previous abuses of the medical system um, against African-Americans, especially. And then lastly, um, what we see with COVID especially is evident in the youth community. And uh, one of the other problems we have is just not having enough social workers or therapists in our schools. Um, these are not luxury services. This is something that every school really needs. And um, I think that this pandemic has really pointed out how essential and necessary having good mental health in schools for young people is. Right. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, you know, white supremacy within our medical system and a lack of trust um, within the black and African-American communities. Um, what, what does the mental health system need to do? What kind of reform needs to happen to where we can, you know, pull out white supremacy and have uh, a system that is, is doing what, you know, um, what we really want it to do, which is, is be a, a healthy service for, for people suffering. Sure. Um, there are two things that come to mind right away. Uh, one is we just need to be hiring and supporting the growth and education of more people of color in our medical system. Um, it simply opens up doors. One of the support groups that we are doing in combination with uh, NAMI South King County is um, a BIPOC support group, um, which gives people a space where race is not something that is a barrier that has to be communicated through. It's just known to be in the room and that uh, opens up a certain amount of communication. So having providers and support groups that really represent the diverse population we have in Seattle helps a lot. And then another aspect that I think is especially true for both mental illness and the crossover with and addition of um, uh, African-Americans is what we see with the high level of violence that includes people with mental health conditions. Um, and then when you take into account the high level of police violence um, against the African-American community, you have a kind of a double bind because now, um, right now, the only real first response that we have um, is the police for a mental health condition. And for any community that's been traumatized by the police, they're simply not going to use that service. And so that means there's a massive gap in the ability to respond to people with a mental health crisis because people just won't call. Um, and that's, that's really difficult. It's one of the reasons we need um, a different approach to decriminalize mental illness and to be able to, um, you know, get people to feel comfortable to call and know they'll get a compassionate response if someone's in crisis. Right. And that really goes into policing and police reform and our approach to policing. Um, I wonder if you have any uh, recommendations there of what we can do to be more um, when people have like a mental health crisis coming in that they're there's not someone with guns drawn. So there are a lot of different models. Most of them do still involve law enforcement in some way. And that's kind of a mixed subject because on one hand, we don't necessarily, you know, you don't need a badge and a gun to respond to 99% of mental health crises, but also police are simply the most likely to encounter someone having a crisis in a public space. So that's kind of the trick is, 
how do we do this handoff? Um, how do we make sure that police can identify a mental health crisis, but then get the right people in place? Because police generally don't want to be handling mental health crises either. It's not their primary training. So it's a matter of getting the right tools in the right place. Um, some models I've seen, um, we hear about CIT a lot in uh, Seattle and other places uh, for police which um, a lot of people think it stands for crisis intervention training. That's not true. It stands for crisis intervention team. And the essential aspect of this is that police responding have a co-responder with them with an equal amount of power um, an equal amount of ability to make decisions and who are in charge when it's a medical situation like a mental health crisis so that they can take over. Um, we've seen different programs that have emphasized this. There's the CAHOOTS program, which is uh, cops helping out on the streets. Um, that's in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, that involves a, a homeless response, including a crisis van, um, a mental health professional, um, and often as well a peer responder, which is someone with lived experience with mental illness who's been trained to try to help this response. Um, and then there's also the LEAD programs, which are law enforcement assisted diversion. And those are interesting because it does involve police, a social worker, and a mental health professional, and it also involves the legal system where there can actually be a measure of, say, someone had 15 arrests last year because of disorderly conduct, property destruction, something like that. Um, and then in the following year, they move down to like two arrests for very minor things that gives the legal system some leeway to be able to say, this is notable improvement. We don't need to pursue these two tiny charges. So there are methods out there that are being tested. Most of them still do rely fairly heavily on police in one way or another. But as I said, until we can kind of figure out a way to have a good first response system that doesn't involve police at all, which will involve our dispatch system. Um, that's going to be tricky. Um, one of the exciting things is the 988 number is rolling out, which is going to be your universal number to get a mental health crisis response. And here in Washington right. state, one of the big things we're pushing for is to have it fully funded so that we can actually divert people to the right, to the right help. This is in place of 911. If, there's like, you know, um, some unruly behavior or something happening in the streets where it, it makes people nervous or what are we? Yeah. So the 988 number should be your universal call for mental health uh, crisis. Um, the problem is if we don't fund the services, then one of the things they're going to do is tell you to go and call 911. <laughs> and we want to avoid that. Um, we want to make sure they have proper resources. Um, so it's going to help was a suicide helpline. Um, it can get you to um, getting the right resources for a response. But exactly what it's going to look like depends state to state. And mm -hmm. so uh, in Washington, we do have a push for a very robust uh, 988 system that involves much more than just the phones and the operators. Um, so we are really kind of pushing to make sure that we have a good, robust mental health response system. But it's a federal law. Um, it was passed, um, I believe, unanimously. So... Um, it's a good start in really differentiating between mental illness and public safety. Absolutely. Yeah. And so how can people in that are like living in their, let's say Washington state, cause we both live there, um, here, how can we encourage, um, the state to, to put funding behind this? What can, what can people do? You can write your senators. Um, you can also go to the NAMI Washington webpage. Um, NAMI Washington is the overseeing uh, branch of our organization that helps especially with policy. Um, and you can read up on what the uh, what their proposals are from there. But the big thing that you can do, um, especially if you want to advocate for mental health, is find out who your state representatives are 
and write them and tell them that you want to see a robust response system attached to 988. Um, you should be able to find other groups. Uh, NAMI Seattle doesn't have a specific letter of support, but um, there are a lot of great resources out there to learn how to write a letter of support to your senator and or your state representative and just ask for a really robust system. Great. That's amazing. I'm really excited for that program. Why do you think there there's this stigma around mental illness? Um, there are so many different answers that are available for that. Um, it, um, it can, you know, mental illness has been criminalized, hidden away, or otherwise, um, treated with a lot of contempt in Western society for a very long time. Um, but there are some things about it. One is that simply the symptoms of mental illness make people uncomfortable. Um, you know, psychosis is a very, very severe symptom, um, and it can be scary on the outside. It's terrifying for the person experiencing it as well um, in most cases. But um, So some of it's just fear of the unknown. Um, some of it is Western medicine's desire to cure everything, and mental illness is not something that's really curable. It's treatable. Um, you know, you can live um, a healthy and productive and fulfilling life with any mental health condition, whether it's depression or schizophrenia. Um, all these things are recoverable, but the fact that we can't really cure it, I think, um, I think adds some stigma to the scenario because it puts in that idea culturally that these people don't get better. They are a certain way. Um, and then I think lastly, it just comes down to some of our modern sense of productivity. You know, the idea that people with mental illness don't produce, um, there's a certain stigma in our country about, uh, about work and um, people with mental illness do and can work. 90% of people with severe mental illness want to have a job. It's just a question of whether or not we're actually making a space for them to do so. Um, and I think the fact that we haven't shows that that stigma is still there of not wanting to include um, people to us closely. How can we make spaces in the workplace? Um, what are different like action steps that companies and organizations can take to help make spaces? Sure. So we do them? some uh, worksite trainings on uh, making spaces in mental for mental health care, um, and a lot of it comes from a management level. Um, how you approach someone who's struggling with their mental health is the difference between them opening up and finding solutions versus just making someone feel more bullied. Um, there are three things that the World Health Organization specifically states as detrimental to mental health, whether you have a pre-existing condition or not. Um, an oppressive workload is one that hurts your mental health. Lack of clear direction, that hurts your mental health. And any kind of bullying or mobbing um, by your coworkers or boss. That hurts your mental health. So a lot of what we do is train managers to check in on yourself and your own mental health before addressing someone who's struggling with theirs. Um, because there is a certain mindset that comes to nonviolent communication and speaking and listening with empathy. And those are skills that really, I think, make as much space in the workplace as any, is just being able to know how to have those conversations and know how to keep it focused on, you know, not the employee's failings, but on the employee's feelings and, um, and making sure that they know that they're valuable and treating the illness just like you would with a physical illness, um, which I think is something we're moving a little closer towards in this society. I don't know if we're there yet, but there's slow improvement, I think. I'm curious as to like what has worked for you along your journey um, as far as strategies you've taken. It seems like you've been through quite a bit um, as you manage uh, uh, your bipolar and depression. 
And I'm curious what strategies that, that you've taken that have really worked for you and um, that people could learn from. I've found that for me, personal growth is really important. I need to always be learning something, even though my mind and body don't want to move in the same way. Um, but, you know, after about two years, I have to find a new hobby or new work or new apartment or new something. Um, so that that's kind of helpful, but stressful. Um, I think one of the things that's been the biggest help for me is having friends or family that aren't afraid of anger. Um, because for a long time, what I went through made me really, really angry. And I needed someone who could just sit there and listen to me scream and yell and just be angry as anything about, you know, angry at my illness, angry at the way I'd been treated by the police or the hospital, um, angry at other friends who dismissed my symptoms, just having a chance to be angry and have that anger validated without having it be kind of fed into was really, really important for my journey. Just being able to be angry and have that be okay and be understood. And I think that's true of a lot of emotions, just being able to just be sad and having someone there who doesn't try to fix you <laughs> that, um, that is huge to me. Someone who can just listen but doesn't try to fix me um, has been a, a huge, huge help. Yeah, for sure. You know, this summer we had one of the most decorated gymnasts in U.S. history. Um, Simone Biles withdrawal from the files uh, of the Olympics, and she said this. She said, we also have to focus on ourselves because at the end of the day, we're human too. We have to protect our mind and our body rather than just go out there and do what the world wants us to do. And I think, I think so much of like this past year in the pandemic, we saw employers pushing us to be like, it's business as usual. Well, we watched and looked outside and saw the world burning. And, um, and so I guess what, what do you think Simone Biles taught the world about mental health in that moment? I think one of the big things she taught is that there is nothing more important than your own well-being. Um, and I think that's a cultural change. Um, you know, it's a change away from you have a duty to do X, Y, and Z, and you should sacrifice your body and your mental state and everything else for it. Um, and I see it as a really great expression um, of an individual who is part of a team, was working very hard, but um, she has prioritized her mental health in a way that I think we're not really used to seeing. And, you know, good for her um, for really taking that stand. Um, it's part of how we get to the point of getting mental health on par and with parity um, to physical health, I think, is to say, if you're not doing physically well, of course you can't jump across a, a gymnastics mat and perform complex <laughs> Simone Biles-style <laughs> maneuvering. But, um, but I think she really made a great statement that, you know, um, and it, it goes along with other things we know about mental illness. People with severe mental health conditions or experiencing um, severe mental health symptoms are at a higher risk for accidents. Um, so, you know, it was a safe decision on her part. It was wise for her to take care of herself. Um, when you see, you know, mental health symptoms beginning to show up, early intervention is the number one way to make sure that they don't affect your life in the long term. That's something that we are somehow just now exploring as an important aspect of, uh, of recovery for all mental illnesses. Um, but I mean, really good for her for coming out with a statement that says, you know, my mental health is the most important thing to me, not entertaining, not um, being what someone else wants me to be. Um, you know, it's, it's very good for her to be able to say, you know, that her mental health is what matters. And, and it's okay to step away. 
Yeah, and and just a reminder for for any critics out there that uh, Simone Biles um, powered through kidney stones to get some of those medals that she's earned, and so there's there's no one in the world who I can think of that's quite as tough as Simone Biles, and so I think I for me I I I wonder just in my own personal journey when do I know that it's time to push and when do I know it's time to be like, okay, I need to, I need to withdraw. Um, so part of growth is, you know, struggle and painful. And honestly, I can tell you from my own experience, treatment was painful. It involves changing your whole sense of self. Um, you know, especially if you go years and years with really low self-esteem and irritation, it's not a comfortable experience to be able to make those changes. So that's an example of pushing that brings you better mental health. Um, when I went back to college after i had had so many troubles, um, you know, I was working full time and taking classes part time and there was a definite push there, but I kind of felt driven. Uh, the thing that really I think is good to look out for is your body. Um, the human body will tell you um, when your stress levels are high. Uh, lack of sleep is something that I don't feel I need a medical degree to, <laughs> to point out is 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 a problem. You know, um, generally, like the first things to look at is are you still maintaining roughly the schedule that you did before? Um, are you eating well or at least eating? Um, and are you sleeping? Um, so those are some basic things to look at in terms of your stress level where you might feel pushed, but if the rest of your routine isn't starting to come apart, um, then, you know, you might just be pushing. Um, the other aspect is, you know, if you if you're pushing like really, really hard, you might have a limit or a wall. So what's pushing at one time might might be struggling with your mental health uh, at a later time. And you know, we are not in an ideal world, but if you have the ability and option, if you're ever in doubt, schedule a meeting with a therapist or a mental health professional. Um, it like if you have a rash that won't go away, you go to the doctor. Um, if you have mental health symptoms that aren't going away, also go to the doctor. <laughs> it's very important that we stop thinking about uh, mental health as something that's that's secondary. Um, you know, there certainly are levels of um, pushing yourself where you'll feel tired, but you know, you might still feel a sense of satisfaction. Um, if you start feeling very defeatist and uh, symptoms like that, then, you know, sometimes that's normal. But if you're ever in question as to whether or not you're doing yourself harm by how hard you're pushing, check in with a mental health professional. Sometimes they can give you recommendations that will help you push through a difficult time. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing, there's never anything wrong with going to therapy. Amen. Amen to that. Um, I think a big reason I started this podcast is, is because of the mental health journey I've been on, uh, this past year and, and starting with counseling in January and just been able to really work, work some stuff out. Huge fan of therapy and, um, would recommend it to anyone, even if you're not in crisis, just the, the power of therapy and, and how, um, how it's good to have someone who's just there to listen. And, um, and again, as we talk about cross-culturally, you know, that person you talk to might be a priest or an elder. Um, there are a number of different people. It doesn't necessarily, you know, I, in Western culture, I highly, you know, tend to recommend therapists because they're what we go to, but, um, anyone who's really well-trusted by you to be able to speak about your feelings and your emotions, um, you know, those are also options too. So you don't have to feel like you just have to go with a Western medicine solution. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how is NAMI's work 
uh, we're really working to challenge um, some of those stigmas and the assumptions around and stereotypes around mental illness. Sure. So we are probably primarily an education, uh, mental health education organization. And the way we do our education is largely through the voices of people with lived experience in mental illness. Um, so, for example, we send um, a lot of student or a lot of uh, presenters to the Seattle public schools. These tend to be younger people, usually in their either just graduating from high school, no older than 30. And they talk to school kids about their experiences with mental health conditions when they were in mostly high school, sometimes middle school. Um, the middle school students have the sweetest comments there. I, I swear that's the right age to reach <laughs> mm. because they seem to still be very open uh, to the discussion. Can you think of any comments that stand out? Oh, one was um, uh, because of... Because of this talk, um, now I know what to do if a friend is sad or hurting. Like, oh. stuff like that. Just really yeah. sweet stuff from these 11, 12-year-olds. Yeah. Um, or however however middle school <laughs> age kids are. Um, but um, things like that. Um, then we do another version called In Our Own Voice. Um which is uh, for adults to adults. So a lot of times they'll speak at businesses or offices for King County or the city of Seattle. Um, one of the things that I really like the most about this program is we also bring these people in to speak um, at inpatient hospitals or do it remotely right now still um, just because of the precautions. But um it's really great because there's nothing else that really replicates that in an inpatient psychiatric setting of someone who can come in and say, I have been exactly where you're sitting. Um, now I am able to live independently. I haven't been in the hospital this many years. Like having the chance for inpatients to see it earnestly and right there um, and, you know, ask questions of those presenters is a really amazing experience. And um, so we do that. That tends to fight um, what we call self-stigma. There's this effect called the why try um, effect, which is if I have a mental illness and people with mental illness are less competent, then I'm not competent to have a job. If I'm not competent to have a job, I'm not competent to live independently. And it can kind of just keep falling step by step all the way down. And I think these presenters really help to challenge that kind of self self stigma that can that can be just as harmful as external stigma. Absolutely. And then last, let's see, what else do we have? Um, we educate families. Um, a lot of NAMI's population is families um, who have adult children with severe mental illness, like schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, um, type 1 bipolar disorder, um, a lot of the psychosis disorders. These are some of the hardest to treat. Um, they have pretty severe symptoms, which can be managed. Um you know, I don't, I don't want to in any way separate these people out, but we don't have good care or coverage for them. Um, mm -hmm. And so a lot of parents come to learn about um, their children's condition, how to support them, uh, what resources to get. And then lastly, we just do regular support groups um, for people of all types. We have BIPOC support group, uh, an LGBTQ support group, um, a lot of bipolar support groups, um, just general family support groups. And what I like about our groups is that they're all walk-in um, and they're all low barrier. Um, it is preferred you do not come in extremely drunk or high, um, but <laughs> that will not necessarily get you kicked out unless you are disruptive to the group. Um, you know, we generally ask that people show up sober, but wherever you are, whether you have a diagnosis that's official or not, you're welcome to walk in and, and see if that group might be right for you. Wow. Yeah, I think, man, mental health just and mental illness impacts so many facets of our society, as you mentioned, you know, um, BIPOC communities, um, policing, 
our healthcare system. I mean, the list really goes on. I could talk to you all day um, about these different issues. Um, what has been the greatest lesson for you from your work? You know, there are a few big lessons. Uh, one is just the power of people who have experience with mental illness, whether that's personally or through a family member, just how powerful that advocacy is and how strongly people will stand up for themselves or their, or their loved one. Um, just being able to see that level of compassion um, for the self and for others, in spite of all the challenges they've met with mental illness, I think is, is something that's really inspiring. Um, I love when we get good reviews from support groups. Someone wrote recently that a support group literally saved their lives, and mm. that's when I know we're doing good work. Um, you know, my job involves doing a lot of fundraising, and um, and one of the hardest things I deal with, but that's still the most amazing, is that sometimes we will get memorials um, for people who have died by suicide. And just seeing the amount of generosity of people who have gone through so much loss and the kindness that comes out is something that it, it both inspires me and breaks my heart at the same time. But, um, but um, just there's in the face of like loss and uh, difficulty and such misunderstood struggles the, the amount of hope and generosity and mutual support that comes out of that in this community is something that just really blows me away every time. That's powerful. So if you were to, um, if you were to have a microphone that could broadcast to the world, what message would you give it? I think I would say that recovery is possible for absolutely everyone and there are no exceptions um i think that you know mental illness can put you in trouble with the law um can get you medically committed but i think that the one message i would really say is there's so much power and compassion and um you know, just doing the work of constantly trying to manage mental illness is so difficult. Um, and so I really want everyone to know recovery is possible, and it's very hard. Um, if you think about what a person with a severe mental illness has to go through, they have to uh, take all their medications on time. They have to be very careful about what they eat. They have to exercise. They can't smoke. They can't drink. They can't use any drugs. Like this idea of like pure living is almost essential for people with a, with a severe mental health condition. So um, I think just that recovery is possible and that there needs to be some patience. Um, it is very, very hard to be able to live a life that will help manage all your symptoms. If you have severe symptoms, even treatment resistant depression, it takes a lot of time. Um, it is a hard condition to recover from because everything that's supposed to work doesn't. So, but it's still always possible. So I guess that's maybe more for the people who are struggling than for the rest of the world. <laughs> but I, um, I think there's quite quite a few of the world that are. So, yeah. and I think it's one of those things that's definitely under underreported because of the the stigma that you're working on challenging. Mm -hmm. So, well, um, is there any anything I haven't asked you that that you want to make sure people hear? I can take this chance to maybe straighten up some misconceptions. One of the things we're talking about a lot in Seattle is the homelessness crisis. And, um, you know, about 30% of the population that is unhoused um, has a severe mental illness. And I want people to remember that it's not 
housing that creates a severe lack of housing that creates a severe mental illness people with severe mental illness are vulnerable to losing their housing and eviction um so i'd really like to make sure people understand the direction that this travels um and not try to just look at the problem and say oh well only this many people have severe mental illness and we don't know what to do with them they're kind of unhumans those people all had homes and families at some point in their lives um so i think it's very important just to emphasize that um this is a process where people are vulnerable and then they wind up in circumstances that are exactly what you would expect from that vulnerability. The same thing is true. Um, people with a mental illness are 16 times more likely to be shot and killed by a police officer than the average population. Mm. So um, there are a lot of, uh, what else? People with uh, mental illness um, that goes untreated often live 20 to 30 years below the average life expectancy. So there are a lot of determinants that mental illness is the origin of. It's not a byproduct. It's not a personal weakness. It's nothing like that. It develops, and then these negative determinants tend to come. Yeah, and I think about that homelessness, experiencing homelessness could create mental illness as well. Trauma. It creates trauma. Um, It is losing one's home. There was one study that said the only thing more traumatizing is losing the loss of a limb or paralysis um, because it completely changes everything about your day-to-day routine. Um, So um, when you get away from just severe mental illness and you look at things like trauma as a mental health condition, which we should, um, then you're talking about pretty much the whole population at that point, um, which is why we can't really expect to just build some houses and throw some people in there. It mm-hmm. yeah. it requires some support, um, some time with a social worker, and it will vary based on the individual, but some help to reacclimate is definitely useful and should be expected. Yeah. What do you think we could do as a culture? I, I think about our culture too, and you know, the advent of technology exacerbating, you know, different levels of anxiety and depression. And um, I just think, like, what can we as a culture do to help prevent um, mental illness? And, and maybe not severe mental illnesses that are are genetic, but uh, mental illnesses that, that can happen because of trauma, because of environment environmental cues things like that well i think we look at simone biles and we just acknowledge that there are times when it's okay to step away and um it's also it's so difficult i had a friend who was an attorney who told me he didn't know how anyone could maneuver through this world if they weren't a lawyer Um, and that seems to become very true for a lot of mental health um, issues especially when it involves the workplace insurance agencies trying to make sure you have parity in your mental health care Um, so it's difficult and honestly stepping away can just be taking the time to get the resources that you need put together is as i said before the the people who are trying to get resources from the hospital when they're getting out and it's taking six weeks it's not going much faster for people who aren't in the hospital either so um, it's just really difficult but culturally i really think I think it's time, you know, we have a very production-based society, but I think that even if you keep on that level, when you look globally, mental illness costs the global economy over a trillion dollars every year. Um, And taking better care of the mental health of staff and employees um, is a way to offset that. So, I don't think anyone has a good formula on mental health versus productivity and like a nice bell curve or anything like that. But, um, but what we do know is that 
there's a lot of money lost largely because of depression and anxiety as much as anything else. Um, those are probably the two leading determinants and we just have to kind of acknowledge that we're hurting ourselves and this goal of like unlimited growth and productivity is being hurt just as much (laughs) by our refusing to acknowledge the problem. So I think, um, you know, with, with this culture where we're so productivity driven, a good place to start might be to simply say, we are costing ourselves a lot of money and draining a lot of people and putting a lot of people out of work. Um, and it's doing us no good. It's costing, costing money instead of making it. So even from a productivity standpoint, it doesn't make sense to neglect the mental health of your staff or employees. Absolutely. Well, any final thoughts? I don't think so. Um, The only real final thought I would have is I always encourage people to, um, uh, one great way to follow up on what's happening in the legislature is to check our our parent organization, NAMI Washington's um, bill tracker. And I highly encourage people to write um, and write into their state representatives. We can do a lot here in Washington. Um, You know, mental health tends to vary by state. And so here in Washington, like, just keep writing those letters that you want compassionate mental health services. Um, You know, don't, don't worry about a permanent supportive housing unit somehow you know, harming your neighborhood's property values or something. Don't, don't buy into that sort of thing. Like I, I live on first Hill. I have three permanent supportive housing units near me. They're all great neighbors. I have no problem with any of them. <laughs> They're all wonderful people. Um, so just, you know, don't give in to the misconception. Thank you, Jeremiah, for being our guest this week. Thank you to everyone at National Alliance on Mental Illness for your work to remind those most impacted by mental health challenges that they are not alone and for empowering them to live fulfilling lives. This has been another episode of Miking Change. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I've enjoyed making it. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And join me again next week as we work to put a microphone to the stories that matter.